the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, David is so grateful for all God's blessings in his life that he wants to give something back. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. The title of the message is Deep Calls to Deep. Second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven. The theme of both of the Samuels has to do with things of the heart. And first Samuel we looked at lessons from the heart, and in Second Samuel we're looking specifically at David's heart, and therefore we're looking at a heart that's after God. And when you Think of what it means to have a heart after God. You know, if you say I love you to somebody, the idea is there's a connection there. You know, there's, there's some type of relationship there. I mean, granted, you can say it to anybody, but we, we don't tend to do that. And so when we, we read that phrase in the scripture reading, we read Psalm 42, where it says deep calls unto deep. Have, have you ever wondered what that means? I mean, it's a phrase we use sometimes in songs. And every time I, I sing it, I go, I don't know what that means. And it gets more confusing sometimes when you read it. Like verse 7 of Psalm 42 has always baffled me because when you first read it, it it actually sounds like a negative. Deep calls unto deep. Your waterfalls overrun me. Wave after wave hits me. This doesn't sound like a good thing. It sounds like somebody's lost at sea. And yet we're singing deep calls unto deep. I'm thinking, I I don't want to do that. So it's always been difficult for me to understand. Now, when we sing it, or we talk about it, usually, we, you know, it conveys this idea of the, the depths of our heart calling out to God's heart. And we're going to see David experience deep calling to deep. And, and what we will learn is that while it does mean our heart calling out to God's heart, there's another side to it that's oh so important. So chapter 7 of Second Samuel, we begin in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David, at this point in verse 1, he has recaptured all the land that the Philistines took from Israel. The Ark of the Covenant's back in the tabernacle. David, as he's forged alliances with the nations around him. David has a palace in Jerusalem. I mean, things are good. But as he's sitting around and he's got peace in front of him, life is good. 
he's thinking about things. And as he's thinking about something in particular, he says something unto Nathan the prophet. Now, this is our first meeting with this prophet. Nathan is likely a graduate from Samuel's school of prophets. He is thought to be the authors of the chapters in First and Second Chronicles that cover David and Solomon's reigns, because it mentions that he wrote those. So he appears to be someone who is a regular advisor in David's court once David became king, because we're going to see him involved with three important situations in David's life. And so I don't think all of a sudden, you know, David's just sitting in court and Nathan the prophet slides onto the screen. Hello, David. Important things are going on and I'm here. It's very likely that he was a member of David's royal court. And so this is a marked difference from Saul, of course. Saul, he had no one from Samuel's school of prophets as his advisor after Samuel died. And, and of course, we know that you know, before Samuel died, that Samuel stopped advising Saul because Saul stopped listening. And so while David is not perfect by any stretch, he, he's trying to do things the right way. He's trying to do things the right way. And so this is why he seeks Nathan's advice about something he wants to do. He says, see now, which means please become aware of something. In other words, I've become aware of something, something that, that, that I think is wrong. He, and he says this, he says, I dwell in a house of cedar. My palace is, it's a solid building. But the ark of God, it, it dwells within curtains, the tabernacle, this mobile building that was truly more like a tent. In other words, David tells Nathan, he goes, I think the Lord deserves a palace more than I do. And we need to, I think we need to fix that. If we rectify the situation with the tabernacle, I think we need to do it here too. We need to give God a temple. And Nathan's advice is, he says to the king, go. I think go for it, man. He says, go, do all that's in your heart. The phrase, all that's in your heart is emphatic in the Hebrew, which is the main focus. David, your heart's in the right spot. Your heart's for the Lord here. I, I think that's a great idea. In fact, go and do are both imperative. I think you need to do this. I think this is something God's put on your heart. And he says to him, for the Lord is with you. Because God had blessed David and, and the nation so wonderfully after years of struggle, Nathan assumes that this desire comes from the Lord. And, and the Lord's with you, man. It's got to be the Lord. Go for it. <laughs> And Nathan's going to find out here in verse 4 that uh, later that night that he was wrong about that part. (laughs) Verse 4, and it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, shall you build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, why did you not build me a house of cedar? God comes to Nathan and says, actually, Nathan, I don't want David to do this. Shall he build me a temple? It's interesting because it says the word of the Lord came to Nathan, which means the advice he gave earlier were his own words. That's okay. We're human, right? We mess up sometimes. And, and it seemed like a great idea, but it wasn't the Lord. I don't know if you guys watch college football ever, but in the words of the great Lee Corso, not so fast, my friend. Nathan, you got it wrong. Now, this brings up the question, why would God not want David to build him a permanent place of worship? Well, the scriptures give us three reasons, and uh, only two of them are mentioned here in, in chapter 7. 
But the first one we see in verses 6 and 7, because God says there's nothing to fix. I never asked for this. He says, go and tell my servant David, you know, are you going to do this? No. It's a question that is imp- the answer is implied in the language. No. Verse 6, whereas, uh, this is a marker of contrast. In contrast to what David wants to do, hold on, this is my heart. I have not dwelt in any house, any permanent dwelling, since the time I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day. But I have walked, traveled in a tent and in a tabernacle. Now, the idea here is that the time that it was away from the tabernacle before David brought it back, either I was in the tabernacle or I was in a, another temporary dwelling place. I've never been in a building. In all the places, verse 7, wherein I have walked, traveled with all the children of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, why did you not build me a house of cedar? The word there for feed, it means to shepherd, to care for. And that's what Israel's leaders were supposed to be. In other words, the Lord's saying from the time of Moses, Joshua, the judges, even King Saul, did I ever chide you or complain because you didn't build me a, a physical temple, a building? God always had made it clear to Israel what he wanted them to do. And he never said anything about this. Therefore, there's nothing to rectify, nothing to fix. Which now leads God to his second reason. And the second reason is that God will not be outgiven by any man. And so he tells Nathan to tell David all that he's done for David and all that he's going to do. Verse 8. Now therefore, so shall you say unto my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, isn't that a cool thought? David doesn't hear from the Lord correctly, and yet the Lord still says to him, go tell my servant David this. We're human, guys. We don't always hear from the Lord correctly. And so doesn't make us not God's servants because we don't hear perfectly all the time. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you whithersoever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and I have made you a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. God says, David, I'm going to remind you of all the things I've already done for you. And David's rise to the throne, it wasn't just improbable, it was a miracle. And it was God from beginning to end, from being a simple shepherd to being the king of a nation, from being a fugitive to becoming famous, from civil and external wars to now peace and prosperity. All of that was the Lord. He says, David, I I did all of that for you. David was a godly man and he became a good leader. But whatever David had given to the Lord was a drop in the bucket compared to what God had given to him. And God wasn't even done establishing David's kingdom. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I will. This is what I've done for you, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel. I'm going to plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. The Lord says to David, I'm not done yet. This is all I've done for you that's crazy and probable. I'm not done giving to you. He says, I'm going to take my people, Israel, I'm going to plant them, firmly embed them in the land, that they may dwell, settle down in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore. 
like they have before time. You know, the Philistines and, and all the other enemies of Israel, they're still in the land that God promised to Israel. That land that the Philistines are in is Israel's. He promised them that land. And we're going to see in the next few chapters how God gives David a full victory over all those enemies that are in the land. There will be no one sharing the land with Israel after this. And so while this desire to build God a temple stems from a deep reverence and love for God that's in David's heart, God doesn't want David to do this out of a sense of a need to balance the scales. That's what David's saying. He's looking around and goes, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I've got this really nice place and God's got this dumpy tent. He says, we need to even the scales or make them a nicer place. And the Lord doesn't want David to do that for that reason. God did all this for David. He did all this for his people because he just loves them. God always wants us to relate to him that way, not a legal way. Now, I said there are three reasons. The third reason is not here. You have to turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 22 when David's explaining the importance of the temple project to Solomon, his son, who will build it. In 1 Chronicles 22, David gives us this insight. 1 Chronicles 22, 7, And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house under the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed blood abundantly. And you have made great wars. You shall not build a house under my name because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. David did have blood on his hands, both as a soldier and then from his time working for the Philistines. And the Bible doesn't explain how, but somehow that disqualified David from the honor of building the temple. It's interesting. The temple was something that was in God's heart. But David wasn't the one that God had wanted to do it. And this was one of those other reasons. And so, even if David changed his mindset and said, well, Lord, I just want to build a temple for you because I love you, not trying to even the scales, even then the Lord wouldn't let him for this reason. Now, as you could imagine, if, if you were David and you were getting this news, it'd be kind of a bummer. And so, instead of leaving things on that note, the Lord tells David about something new he's going to do for him. He tells David that his family is going to become the dynastic line for Israel's kings. Look at the end of verse 11. It says, also, Nathan's going to relay this to David, also, the Lord tells you, declares to you, announces to you that he will make you a house. See, David, we already have a palace. He's not talking about a palace. He's talking about a a family, a dynasty. And when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your father's, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. This is so fascinating because God has made numerous promises all throughout Scripture to humanity concerning the Messiah. And so because of that, we know that this forever kingdom that he's talking about here, that that, that the final kingdom is his, right? We know that. It's the Messiah's kingdom. So the only way David's kingdom can last forever is if one of his descendants is the Messiah, right? And so this chapter has what we, what we call here the, the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David that the Messiah will come through his line. 
in Scripture, what we see is this God narrowing down the family of the Messiah. He starts with Adam and Eve. He makes that promise to Adam and Eve, particularly to Eve. He says, listen, the the serpent, your seed is going to crush his head. He's going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush his head. That's the first promise of the Messiah that we have. But then then we know it's going to be through the line of Seth, and then we know it's going to be through Noah, and then we know it's going to be through Abraham, and then we know it's going to be through Judah. And now he narrows it down to the family of David. That's where the Messiah is going to come from. Now, this does raise a question, though, because, well, what if one of my descendants blows it? What if they fail as a leader like Saul did? I mean, God ripped the kingdom away from Saul and gave it to someone else. Won't God do that with my kids, with one of my descendants, if they're like Saul? And God promises that his relationship with David's descendants will be different than the one he had with any other leader. Look at verse 14. He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now, there's of course dual meaning to this because it's a prophecy that the Messiah will be God's son, right? A relationship, of course, that can never be severed. But it also shows that God's relationship with the kings of Israel will be different than it was with Saul. Look at what it says. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy, that word there, mercy, means my loyal love, my unconditional devotion, it shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so then Nathan hears all this at night. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. David, He goes and tells David. Now, this is a beautiful illustration here of our relationship with the Lord because the Scripture says that when we get saved, we become joint heirs with Christ, right? We become royalty. And and God becomes our Father, right? In, In Romans 8, verses 15 through 17, those beautiful words, it says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we have been elevated to this unique relationship now where God is our Father, right? And so in the same way that when David's descendants would sin, God would discipline them. When we sin, God doesn't become our enemy like he did with Saul. He doesn't remove his love from us. Instead, as a loving father, he disciplines us, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, I think, we have that text every parent knows by heart, right? No chastening for the time, present time is, is joyful, son, right? You know, it's hard, but you need it. It's got to do this because I love you, right? My dad always told me, this hurts me more than I hurt you. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. There's no way. Hebrews 12, 6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. And if you endure that correction, that discipline, that chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father does not chasten? For if you, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you're illegitimate. You're not really family, not sons. So, This concept, this idea of God's discipline in our lives, that's evidence that we belong to him, that we're his son, we're his daughter. And that's what a loving father does. He disciplines. And so when you blow it, you don't 
you don't have to be afraid of God. You don't have to, to think well, he doesn't love me anymore. No, you need, to, you need to go to him and find grace and help and mercy in time of need. That's why he disciplines us to teach us and to bring us where, back to where we need to be. Now, this is all a tremendous gift of grace on top of all that God's already done for David. I mean, for him to bring him from a shepherd following sheep to now he's leading people, the entire nation of Israel, that's a, an amazing thing. All that God has done was grace, but now on top of this, God says that your line's going to be the line of the Messiah. Your line's going to be a dynastic line, and I'm going to treat your line differently than I treated Saul even. That's awesome. And so when David hears this, when we don't get the relaying of it from Nathan to David, it just says he did it, he told him. But when David hears about this from Nathan, it hits him in the deepest place of his heart. He is absolutely blown away by God's goodness. And so he gets alone with the Lord to pour out the depths of his heart. And so this text has become one of my favorite in all the Bible when I was studying this this week. And I thought, this is so cool. This is like if somebody were to all of a sudden like have a, like that reality TV show, it'd be like reality TV show with you, you know, in your private prayer time that nobody sees, not even your spouse, where it's just you and Jesus and you're just bearing your heart out to him. That's what's going on with David here. It says in verse 18, then went David in and sat before the Lord. Now, this could be a private room. It could be the tabernacle. Either way, uh, the word sat before, it means remained facing. So wherever David went, remember, he's not a priest, so he can't go into the Holy of Holies. He can't even go into the holy place. Wherever he is, he remains facing wherever the Holy of Holies is for quite some time. He's just, he's just there. And during that time, he prays. And he starts his prayer like this. He said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me hitherto? You brought me to this place. There's a part of me that wonders if David wrote Psalm 8 after this. You know, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should think of him? When I consider the stars and the heavens, you know, and how vast they are. And I think, Lord, how could you think on me? Maybe, I don't know. But David's in this mindset right now. All too frequently, I hear people say, God isn't good. God isn't fair. If he was, he would have never let this happen to me. And there may be times you've felt that way. Maybe even times you've said those things. But whenever I, I say or think that, it shows I, I'm not actually in a place to say, who am I when God blesses me? I mean, that should be the response. Who am I? And we saw David's not immune to that temptation. He succumbed to it in chapter 6 when God killed Uzzah for touching the ark, right? He, God, you're not good. He goes angry at the Lord. But this chapter shows that his repentance in chapter 6 was real. That David knows he's not the good one. That the Lord's the good one. And so he says, who am I? And what is my family, my house, that you have brought me this far? Lord, you just you reminded me of everything you've done. You reminded me of who I used to be and how far I've come and how, you, how you're the one that did it all. And he's like, David, maybe for the first time, I think grasps just how gracious God has been to bring him to the, the status report we read in verse 1 of chapter 7. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies. I think maybe for the first time, David just how gracious God has been to him to do all this. 
that despite David's faithfulness through the hard trials, he still didn't deserve any of this. I think in this moment when Nathan relays the story, I'm sure that as he first hears, no, David, you're not gonna build me a temple. He's probably bummed. But then as the Lord says, let me, let me tell you what I've done for you. Let me tell you what I'm gonna keep doing for you. And let me tell you something really new and cool that I'm gonna do for you. I think as David is hearing this from Nathan, I think his understanding of God's goodness, God's love, and God's grace just goes, boom. <laughs> I just think he's blown away. And I think what David realizes when it all hits him, I think he realizes I could never balance those scales. There's nothing I could ever do to balance those scales. I could never even come close to balancing those scales. And yet while he's, he's, he's trying to wrestle with all that, he realizes just how small of a gift everything God's already done for him is compared to this new promise from God. Look at verse 19, and, and this was yet a small thing in your sight. That everything you've already done for me and what you say you're going to do for my reign, that's insignificant in your sight, O Lord God. What is the one king's reign compared to God's vast, eternal, all-powerful perspective? It's a blip on the radar. And yet David says, even though that's the case, you have spoken also of your servant's house, his family, for a great while to come. David realizes that somehow God has stretched his gift to David to encompass God's vast, eternal, all-powerful perspective. There's a sense in this moment that David experiences God in a way that he's never before. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.